All right, we're in Psalm 37. We began this psalm last week. It's one of the imprecatory psalms, and where David, uh, in this case, David praying against his enemies, but also reflecting on the goodness of God. And this would have, again, been a song that would have been put to music and would have been sung. And so we looked at this last week in the opening verses. We, uh, and I, I'll just go quickly over the outline again. Um, last week we looked at the, the point one, the Lord can be trusted. And we went down through those areas of trust that we can have with the Lord. That's verses 1 to 11. And then tonight we're going to go on to verses 12 to 20. And that's the Lord understands your situation. Uh, again, he, he does, doesn't he? And David, as he's writing here, um, he's, his situation was pretty grave. And uh, there are various times in David's life where he faced some very dark circumstances and his enemies were all around him. Sometimes his own uh, household were parts, you know, and his friends, former friends, were his enemies. And so we're going to look at that tonight. And we'll begin in uh, Psalm... 37 verse 12 we'll read down through verse 20 the wicked plots against the just and gnashes at him with his teeth the lord laughs at him for he sees that his day is coming the wicked have drawn the sword and have bent their bow to cast down the poor and needy to slay those who are of upright conduct their sword shall enter their own heart and their bows shall be broken a little that a righteous man has is better than the riches of many wicked for the arms of the wicked shall be broken but the lord upholds the righteous the lord knows the days of the upright and their inheritance shall be forever they shall not be ashamed in the evil time and in the days of famine they shall be satisfied but the wicked shall perish and the enemies of the lord like the splendor of the meadows shall vanish into smoke they shall vanish away. Lord, we are grateful for your word, and we just count it such a great privilege to be able to open up the Bible tonight, to read it in our own language, and, and Lord, just put it deep in our hearts tonight. And thank you for this psalm of David, and thank you, Lord, for what it says and the reminders that are here. And again, that you might be lifted up out of these pages. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> We come to this section of Psalm 37, and uh, you have David really pleading for, uh, you know, against his enemies and, and actually just restating what is very factual. And, and if you know what the scripture says about the uh, eventual end of the just and the, those that are unjust, you find that this is one of those psalms that uh, clearly explains some of that. The first thing he says is this, the wicked plot against the just and, the na- and gnashes at him with his teeth. The Lord laughs at him for he sees that his day is coming. And then he says, the wicked have drawn the sword, have bent their bow to cast down the poor and needy to slay those who are of upright conduct. And I want to look at that first verse there where it says the wicked plots against the just. And I don't think I have to convince you that we're living in a world that has a lot of wickedness and has a lot of wicked people. People that are even at this very moment plotting to go against the Lord and his people. Uh, And that's not coming from uh, like a 
a paranoid heart or anything like that. I mean, there are people out there that are always paranoid out. People are out to get them. But that's, that's the reality of the world we live in. It's always been that way. It's been that way from the very beginning. Even when the very first instance of sin shows up in the, in the Bible, the, the fall into sin in Genesis chapter 3, you have man attempting to go against God and not obey God. Even in a perfect world, man in his heart, Adam, and Eve, they wanted to disobey God and th- overthrow really what God had told them. And that's, that's why sin is such a, a grave consequence because at its heart, it's a sin against a holy God. And the wicked plots against the just. He plots against the Lord, plots against his people. And history has revealed that. And I think experience in this life has revealed that as well. And in verse 16 of chapter 35, uh, here it says, With ungodly mockers at feast, they gnash at me with their teeth. That's how David describes it when he talks about that idea. Now that's an interesting phrase, to gnash at someone with your teeth. Uh, that's not something I've had the pleasure of experiencing, that someone has come up and, and bit me. And I think it's, it's a, figure to, a figure of speech, but it is something that the teeth, which you know you bite, you can bite pretty hard and bite right through somebody's skin or whatever else and it really is that idea of you're in a very close battle with somebody and somebody's plotting to do that and their teeth are clenched they're thinking how can i overthrow this one and we know that uh in a very real sense they may may also gnash at them i don't know uh, exactly the imagery we do know that in acts chapter 7 when you have the, the death of stephen stephen was a righteous man he was full of the holy spirit and he stands up to preach a message to the people that were gathered there that were angry at him and at his message. And he preaches the word of God, a, a, a Holy Spirit-filled message and a controlled message from the Holy Spirit. And uh, I would say this, that it didn't get Stephen ahead in this life. Matter of fact, it, he lost his life in uh, the actions of what he did. We come to the end of that chapter and... Stephen is speaking to them. He says, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one. And I think Psalm 35 and Psalm 37, talking about the just, at the heart of it is the just one. Because if you represent the just one, that's why the world will hate you and people plot to overthrow the just one. They can't do it, by the way of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers. Again, pretty harsh language when Stephen says that, and that wasn't going to get him in good graces with the people that were gathered there. It says, who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. When they heard these things, they were cut to their heart, and look what it says, and they gnashed at him with their teeth. I don't know exactly what that would have looked like, but it may indeed, and in the Greek it is a literal, you know, like they may have gone up and bit him. I don't know. But they were certainly upset with him. We know that because look. But he, Stephen, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. He saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. This is an instance where Stephen is about to die. Prior to his death, while he's still standing there, you know, healthy... Um, he sees the Lord Jesus. 
And I think about that. I wonder what it's going to be like when we face those moments right before we die. Um, Elizabeth Elliot's book, Through Gates of Splendor, and the testimony of the, the missionaries that died uh, when they were killed, martyred down there in the Ecuadorian jungle along the Amazon. And the testimony from the Aka people, the Wadani, uh, that killed them, actually, the murderers, testified that when they killed them, they saw splendor of some sort. And they talk about that, that and they referred to it of jumping the great boa. The boa constrictor in their world was the greatest of enemies, and it brought death. And that somehow these people they had just killed jumped the great boa. And they went into paradise. And they saw that. Well, that's what they testified. I don't know. I'm not into some of these things. You know, we think, oh, no, you know, we're getting out there. It's outside of Scripture, all that. Listen, there are those kind of accounts. Here's Stephen. The worst thing is happening to him. He's getting, he's getting gnashed upon, and they're getting ready to kill him. And he sees the glory of God in the middle of that. I wonder about that. Remember Mr. Hogue telling me when his dad died, his dad became a Christian. His dad was a very hard man. Oh, I mean, violently hard man when Mr. Hogue was growing up. And he, he shared that with me. And his dad later became a Christian. And at the time his dad was dying, he was sort of in a comatose state and hadn't really said much for a while. And he was lying in bed and all the family was gathered around him. And just as before he gave up the, the, to death, uh, he sat up in bed and he looked and he said, it's beautiful, it's beautiful. And then he died, just like that. And I, I often thought about that. What do we see at death? You know, will we see anything that way? We will see in the very next moment, we'll be in the glory of God. But is it possible there is that time where maybe like Stephen, we'll see the Lord. We'll see angels that are beckoning to us come. I don't know. I do know what the Bible says. Our home awaits us, Right? Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And we know that that's exactly what happened. The Lord received him. And, they, uh, and God was glorified in the death of Stephen. The first recorded martyrdom in the church age, right? Well, Psalm 37 verse 13 says, The Lord laughs at him. That's the wicked. He laughs at him for he sees that his day is coming. Uh, the idea of laughing is that it isn't that God isn't serious. But have you ever kind of had um, the experience where you see some little, you know, puny guy come up to some great big guy and the little puny guy wants to fight, you know, and all that. And the big guy, you know, he's not picked to fight, but now the fight's come to him and he goes <laughs> and push him out of the way, you know, that kind of thing. Well, that's almost the imagery that is used here. It's that God says you're nothing. You powerful men of the earth, you powerful evil people that have set yourselves against me and against my anointed, the just one, you are nothing. Ha! 
And that's sort of the way that the Lord looks at it. It isn't that he's not serious about it. Oh, he is very serious. And he would rather have people repent. But if you're going to pick a fight with God, it's a laughable matter. That's really what it is. For he sees that his day is coming. Can you imagine, you know, in the strength of their... I think of Alexander the Great. He was probably... There's very few people in history that have the great attached to their name. Alexander was one of them. Alexander, or the form of that name, is one of the most popular names throughout the... Uh, especially in the East and throughout the world. And uh, still today, thousands of years after he lived. And Alexander died at about age 33. He was cut down. And you know, just prior to that, he had gone as far as into India and conquered all these lands, places like Afghanistan, right? And conquered that. Um, he had gone up to India and he was eventually was thwarted there just by the terrain and the fact they also had war elephants. They hadn't come up against war elephants before. Um, and those kind of things. And eventually went back and they, he's thought to have died in Egypt, actually, or in North Africa. Um, and most likely cut down by malaria. Uh, that, that's probably what happened. But he, he only lived to be age 33, same age as the Lord Jesus. And I think of the difference, you know. Today they don't even know where Alexander the Great is buried. Uh, there was a time in history that they knew his tomb was in, uh, in Alexandria, the city that, that in Egypt that bears his name. But uh, it was lost, and even today, they don't know where his tomb is. And I think of that. The greatest and most powerful man of his day stood, and really, his very life was a short-lived life. And, you know, probably thought he would live forever, and yet the Lord saw the end of his day just like that. God used him, matter of fact. The plotting of the evil things that the Greek Empire did at that time, all of that were actually used later for the furtherance of the gospel. Because in the fullness of time, it says God sent forth his son, right? Book of Galatians. It was during that time that the world, through the world powers that existed, the Romans by that time, had established a, a, a climate of peace in that it was a stable climate politically. And the, it was a time where the gospel could go forth. And it wasn't like that in the previous hundreds of years that were, were prior to that. Um, it was a time when there was a common language, a lingua, a lingua franca, the, the Greek language. And I think of that, the New Testament going out into the Greek world. It was in the perfect timing of God. And yet, during that time, you think of some of the evil men that reigned. Uh, later, like Nero everybody was nervous when Nero had any decisions that he was going to make because it usually involved the deaths of people in horrible ways. And yet, Nero is gone. God laughs at those things. Oh, you think you can kill Christians and do away with Christianity? Ha! God laughs. The Lord laughs at him, for he sees that his day is coming. Psalm 2 says the same thing. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? That's a good question. Why do we plot things that are totally empty? Because that's what it is. Picking a fight with God is a vain thing. You will not win. Nobody will win. I don't care if you have all the atomic bombs in the world, right? Uh, you have the best military. You, have a, you aren't going to win. 
He's God who can speak things into existence and he's God who can take those things and destroy that just like that and wrap it up and fold it up like a garment, the Bible says. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. You know, that's the same, that's, back 3,000 years ago when David is writing there in Psalm 2. And you realize that that's still going on today. People are plotting in various places how to get rid of Israel and how to get rid of you know, places that would, uh, you know, those kind of things and, and do away with the Lord. They want to break the bonds because that's the way they look at it, that God has bound them. And if I could break free of that, you can't. Oh, you might have certain aspect of being able to, because he, he allows us to have a will. We can work evil, as I'm talking about as people. We can do those things, but you're still bound. You're bound by a lifespan. You're bound by the parameters that God has established. And he's able to stop you in a heartbeat. <clears throat> he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. He has set him there. As in, and I I think of that, my holy hill of Zion. I think of Mount Calvary. Part of Zion referring to there um, an earthly place, but also with a heavenly place. There was a heavenly Zion and an earthly Zion. And the Lord set was set upon a hill. And it's there that in death he had victory over death. He says he'll hold him in derision. The word for derision means to stammer, to deride, to mock, to make sport of. The Lord is able to do all those things. I can think of people who think that they are somebody really important and then someday just being silenced before him as they stand before their judge to mock to make sport of he holds them in those things psalm 59 8 but you O lord shall laugh at them you shall have all the nations in derision <laughs> think of that the most powerful nations of the earth all plotting against God and, and our nations in there too. You know, there are people in our nation that are plotting against God. They want to do this week in the, I think it was in the New York Times or Washington Post. I, I can't remember, but one of the major newspapers, there was an editorial about how that um, Easter and Passover need to be killed. That's the, the tagline on it. And it was written by somebody who's not in favor of either because, and they're trying to break those bonds that hold us back because those Christians that kind of celebrate the resurrection and those Jews that hold on to Passover, and all, they're just standing in the way of where we could be in our evil things, right? And that's the way they look at it. And yet God says, ha, you shall have all the nations in derision. This is, like I said, an imprecatory psalm, Psalm 37, and written by David. 
And it's interesting David's perspective on that because, again, when David had opportunity um, to sometimes go out after his enemies, he didn't. He left it to God. And the account of in 1 Samuel 26 of when David, he's actually on the run from Saul. Saul is hunting David. Saul has a superior army. And David just has a few of these ragtag men that are with him at this point. And yet God is with David. And David has opportunity to actually sneak into the camp of Saul. He watched in the daylight where Saul was going to lie down. Unbeknownst to Saul, he didn't know he was being watched. And at night, David and Abijah go down and Abijah tells David, now's your chance. God has led you into this and you can kill him. This is David's answer. But David said to Abisha, Do not destroy him, for who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? David said, Furthermore, as the Lord lives, the Lord shall strike him, or his day shall come to die, or he shall go out to battle and perish. You know, David had the long view. David said, you know what, I'm not going to be the instrument that kills Saul. Later it would be Saul that would die. And and, uh, did you have a question or just? Oh, okay. So I saw movement. I thought maybe he has has a question. But uh, Saul is eventually killed um, in battle, maybe, maybe not. It's, you know, there's some question exactly how he died. But he dies. He had a lifespan. And God appointed it in that way. In uh, the book of Job, um, you have this dialogue. Actually, this is directed towards Job by one of his friends. But what the friend says here is true. It says, The memory of him, that's the wicked, perishes from the earth, and he has no name among the renowned. He is driven from the light into darkness and chased out of the world. He has neither son nor posterity among his people, nor any remaining in his dwelling. Those in the west are astonished at his day, and those in the east are frightened. Surely such are the dwellings of the wicked, and this is the place of him who does not know God. And I think of that because I think all of us want to have people remember us, even when we're gone, right? But the reality is probably they won't for very long, maybe a couple generations. I read a stat this week that um, 40, I think it's only 46% of Americans know where their grandparents are buried. Um, And actually, no, sorry, 46% could name their grandparents. That's what it was. And it was less than that for those that knew where they were buried, if they, you know, talking about... Some of them had their great-grandparents a lot. But we're living in a world where we don't really look back at our generations that brought us into the world, those kind of things. Some of them aren't even around, you know, because of various reasons. But, you know, I thought of this because this earth at best is transient and even some marble tombstone is transient, you know what I mean? Eventually it's going to wear out. But when you're in the presence of God... You're always remembered. The just will always forever be remembered in his presence. The unjust won't. 
They will, there will come a day when they are no longer remembered. Their name will never be brought up. And sadly, if those in their family continued that path of wickedness and did not repent, they are not remembered either. And that's what Job is, or what it's saying here in the book of Job. Chris. Yeah, They're like the chaff which the wind drives away. Yeah. And uh, the wind drives out. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, but for those of us that know the Lord. Now, I was thinking back, too, about the gnashing of teeth. Uh, they can gnash, and they have gnashed against the righteous. Uh, yes. the have. But someday there will be weeping and wailing and the gnashing of teeth. In that final. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, so true. And that eternally gnashing, you know, when we think about that. What they gnash out against the Lord will someday be part of their judgment. One is anger yeah. toward his people, and it the is. other one is excruciating pain. Yeah. Never Verse 14, Psalm 37. The wicked have drawn the sword and have bent their bow to cast down the poor and needy. To slay those who are of upright conduct. So again, the picture there of trampling on people and also slaying. That The word to slay means to slaughter. It is the premeditated murder of somebody in a violent way. And there are people that plot to do that. And we find you know, that is exactly what the Lord met head on, didn't he? When he came here and he was slain for us. Uh, literally, he was slain. His and, and eternally, we will look on the marks of him who suffered for us. As John said, as it, when he looks, has that heavenly vision that's recorded in the book of Revelation, I saw, as it were, a lamb slain, and the word means to, that was slaughtered, and that comes right out of really borrowing from the Hebrew term what the wicked chose to do. God answered by providing Himself instead of us. Thank you, Lord. Their sword shall enter their own heart, and their bows shall be broken. You know, you've heard the term, live by the sword, die by the sword. Well, that's, that's where that comes from, you know. If you're going to live that way and plot to slay the wicked, guess what? You're going to be slain someday by the Lord, judged by him. When David writes this, of course, the Lord's giving him this, you know, breathed out, inspired by the Lord himself. But, but he understood this, and it is the long view. It really is. We have to have a long view. Because otherwise, we'll be living in the moment and trying to correct every injustice, which you cannot do. And you live in a very violent world right now, especially in the West, under some things like justice the term justice you know and I, I i marvel at what people are looking for justice in like there's those that want climate justice well how does the climate get justice you know uh, i i just say you know that's wrapped up or you know justice for this wrong or justice for that wrong and the answer of the bible is that we aren't going to in this world get justice for everything i think that righteous people are one way that justice in this world is given out but but ultimately even that you cannot 
meter out justice perfectly in this world, no matter what, even if somebody's caught for their evil. But the Lord is always going to do that right. They're going to die by their own sword. He goes on to say, uh, on, on Psalm 7, this is how he writes there, he says, He made a pit and dug it out, and has fallen into the ditch which he made. Wow. Isn't that the way it is? You, you try to trap somebody, and you plot to do that, and you dig out a ditch, and it grabs a hold of you. And back to the story of Esther, right? And you have that story of Esther and um, when they plotted against the Jews to kill them, it ends up being those same gallows that, that kill that, you know, wicked Haman. And I, I think of that. It's like that's what this psalm is all about, really. His trouble shall return upon his own head, and his violent dealing shall come down on his own crown. Funny how that is, isn't it? I was thinking about Saddam Hussein. Saddam Hussein came to power in, I think it was 1979, um, he was a violent man, violent overthrow of the Iraqi government at the time. Um, and he tried to make himself equal to the great King Nebuchadnezzar. He actually built palaces, several, like a hundred palaces or so, I guess, all, to, all told during his time. But some of the more preeminent ones had bricks in those palaces, and they're still there, even though they've been, some of them have been ruined and, and graffiti all over them. <clears throat> but in those bricks, the initials of Saddam Hussein, and also other bricks, Nebuchadnezzar, and signifying a reign from Nebuchadnezzar to Saddam Hussein, the greatest of kings. And yet, I remember when he was violently overthrown, um, and violently, and that he was, you know, ran, right? And then the Americans found him and, and took him and then handed him back over to the. Uh, Iraqis, not the Sunnis, but the Shia Iraqis, and they uh, judged him, and he was eventually hanged. He died a violent death, and yet he and his family committed probably more violence, including the wiping out of entire villages and other things in his own country, and he was a very violent man. His sons were even worse as far as their actions, and he died the way he lived, and yet I think of that because so many people sit in a very similar position thinking, I'm so powerful, I can do anything. And yet God says, ha, <laughs> and you'll be taken out the way you think you ought to, you, you're taking other people out. And that, that was in a, one of those things I was thinking of as I was preparing this sermon. Psalm 37, verse 16. A little that a righteous man has is better than the riches of many wicked." That's probably a good verse to put somewhere on the, on the wall, you know. Because as you go out and you go to work or you do your activities of the day, it's a good reminder that a little that a righteous man has is better than the riches of many wicked. You look at all the entertainment shows that are out there about, you know, these... Um, mansions that are out there how the rich and famous live or uh you know all kinds of different things from home improvement shows those kind of things and we live in a world today where um i wouldn't call it a privilege because i think it's really more of a curse we get to glimpse into luxury and into things that we most people will never have and can't have 
And it drives a whole culture of covetousness because people want what they can't have. And that's all it is, is a covetousness. And yet, what is best is that a righteous man just needs a little, right? To be satisfied with food and raiment. Not even shelter, right? Just food and raiment. And I think of that because that's really what God wants us to be satisfied with a little. Because someday we're going to have an inheritance that is incorruptible and doesn't fade away, right? First Peter 1. And it's reserved for us in heaven. So whatever you throw your money into today, um, and I'm not saying you don't try to you know, improve your place or any of that stuff, but just be reminded that even a little is far better than having a lot when there's wickedness involved, right? Verse 16 Better is a little with the fear of the Lord. Oh, that's Proverbs 15, 16, sorry. Uh, Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure with trouble. There's another good verse. Parallels what Psalm 37, 16 says. Proverbs 16, 8. Better is a little with righteousness than vast revenues without justice. Hmm. Those themes keep coming back. And then to Timothy. Paul writes, now godliness with contentment is great gain. That's what we need is just contentment. We're not content too often, right? Be content. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. You know, um, that's a, we're talking about imprecatory prayers and can I confess that I have prayed, Lord, break their arms? <laughs> I have. I have before. I've said, Lord, I would love to see these people repent. You know, sometimes they're leaders. They're, they're people that are taking a nation in the wrong direction. They're, they're people that want to, to do things uh, that are just evil. They want to kill. They want to destroy. They, they want to cheapen, you know, marriage, for example. Are those, those kind of things. And I've said, Lord, let them repent and see the truth, but if not, break their arms. Because that's biblical. Because he's going to break their arms. And I think the idea there is that, you know, you can't do a whole lot when you have no arms, right? As far as people still do. And I think, you know, sometimes physical things that are perpetrated against us don't necessarily stop the heart, right? I, I think of the men of Sodom and Gomorrah. God... Uh, allows them to be struck blind and they still grope for the door to go in and to do that which is perverted with the men that they don't realize they're angels but these men that were in the house where Lot was people groping for the door in their blindness I think I'd be running to the eye doctor saying hey help me I just went blind but no their hearts were so just deceitful that it really pictured their spiritual blindness. They were still going headlong off into judgment. The Lord knows the days of the upright, and their inheritance shall be forever. Um, The word know that is used there, it's the Hebrew word to know, to notice, to hear of, to learn by experience. And the Lord knows the days of the upright. 
he's not a distant God that just spun up this whole creation and let it go, right? There are some that teach that. Uh, Deism teaches that, that there's a distant God and and he's not really personal. Um, And he created things, but no, just kind of hands-off approach. We have to make it the best we can from here on out. Well, that's just wrong. He's a God that the Bible tells me knows what it is like to live in a world that's hostile, that's living in a world that is is full of lots of hurts and harms and those kind of things. And he knows it by experience. And I know that because the Bible says that God put on flesh and he dwelt among us. He set up his tent among us and even experienced all the heartache and temptations like we do and yet without what without sin right he we have not a high priest who cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities but in every way was tempted like we are and yet without sin the lord knows the days of the upright he also knows the beginning from the end that idea that being an omniscient god he is outside of time he inhabits eternity he knows what it's like before there was a jack cairn and he knows what it's like when i die what it'll be like he sees the beginning from the end and everything in between and before and after because he inhabits eternity he knows the days of the upright and their inheritance shall be forever see Often we think, uh, like in the Old Testament, there was so much emphasis on the now as in connected to the land of Israel, right? The promised land. And there is a lot of that. But the Psalms, when you come to the Psalms, you read over and over again how they've looked beyond the now to eternity, a heavenly view. And that's why I like reading the Psalms because they, they direct us towards God and they direct us towards heaven. Their inheritance shall be forever. And then the last two verses, they shall not be ashamed in the evil time. In the days of famine, they shall be satisfied. But the wicked shall perish, and the enemies of the Lord, like the splendor of the meadows, shall vanish. Into smoke they shall vanish away. And that is the destiny of the wicked and the destiny of of compared to the destiny of the righteous we have an inheritance that's forever the wicked is like the splendor of a meadow he might look really nice in spring and through the summer but fall is coming and the frost is coming and that snow and it's going to die in this case the dry season and it smokes (laughs) it's all burned up keep a eternal view and god always provides for his own It was Hudson Taylor when he was speaking in uh, England, I believe is where this quote comes from, when he was in his time in England, missionary to China, who saw over a thousand missionaries go to China with the Inland China Mission during his, uh, his years of 40 years almost that he was in China, I believe it was close to that anyways. But he said this, our Heavenly Father is a very experienced one. He knows, right? He knows very well that his children wake up with a good appetite every morning. 
He sustained three million Israelites in the wilderness for 40 years. We do not expect he will send three million missionaries to China, but if he did, he would have ample means to sustain them all. And then one of the most famous quotes that comes from him, depend on it, God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. And that's the way it is. You need to have an eternal view, a heavenly view. And you know, he throws in things here too to sustain us in a wilderness. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the hope that is found in Jesus Christ. Thank you that you had victory over death. May we go out even tonight and live in the light of that great hope. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.